This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I bring on the guest, I have one thing I want to say. Uh, for those of you who turned in last week, tuned in last week to uh, hear Michael Shermer talk about the skepticism, I guess, in the world of UFOs, uh, there was an unavoided conflict that arose at the last moment. Uh, we have rescheduled Michael for the end of the month, so we'll have an opportunity to chat with him. If you have questions for Michael Shermer, uh, go to my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and submit the question. It won't necessarily appear in the blog, but I'll see if we can't get it asked. My guest this week is Don C. Donderry. Uh, he was educated at the University of Chicago, uh, which he entered at the age 15. I was basically still in high school, I guess. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree at 18 and a BCS, Bachelor of Science in uh, Biological Psychology at 21. He began his professional career as a research psychologist with IBM where he helped develop radar navigation displays for the B-52 bomber. After graduating from Cornell University with a PhD in experimental psychology, he joined the Faculty of Science of McGill University, where he taught undergraduate psychology, trained PhD students, and served as Associate Dean of Faculty for Graduate Studies and Research. He retired from McGill in 2009 after a career of 47 years. He has written over 100 basic research papers and technical reports dealing with the science of human visual perception and memory, co-authored one textbook and edited another. He co-founded, I don't know why he got confounded by co-founded. He, uh, as I said, co-founded a Toronto-based agronomics consulting company and has carried out applied research and development projects for private and government clients on topics including flight instrumentation, flight simulation, marine navigation in the ocean and Arctic environment, safety and chemical process engineering. His entire career has been in the mainstream of science and engineering. He is a dual American Canadian citizen and lives in Montreal. His books include UFOs, ETs and alien abductions and truth, lies and ETs. Don, 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 Dare, Dare. Oh, I guess I, I'm gone. I'm gone. Don, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> it's great to be here. And I want to show you something before I want to get a word in first. This is a book that I got autographed from you and Don Schmidt in QFAS in about 1965. And it's got your inscription on the inside and uh, Schmidt's inscription on the inside. I was a helper in a small way at QFAS and our daughter who lived in Chicago at the time did some translations from French because we live in Montreal and she speaks French. Anyway, it's nice to see you again. It's been a long time. <laughs> yes, it has. Did you say 1965 or 1995? 65. You said 65? I did say 65. Well, yeah. With the, oh, wait a the minute. Book no, 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 95. 95. It was Thank 95. You. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> we, I went back to, to Chicago in 95. Uh, okay. Went to QFAS. 
I'm not sure you were there, but I got the. I think you must have been because I got this autographed uh, book, the uh, the uh, Randall and Schmidt book on the yeah. Roswell cross a crash. Did that inspire? You? Did you have an interest before that? No, I had an interest before that. I was I've been interested act actively since '65, so that wasn't new for sure. What got you uh, interested? My professional knowledge. I was teaching psychology and my specialty in research was human visual perception and memory. Where does the UFO evidence come from? It starts at least with human visual perception and memory of what you saw and are recounting to people. And since I was listening very carefully to what was going on and watching in 65, and a lot of people were scoffing and debunking and making quote scientific statements about the ludicrousness of all this, I realized their statements were nonsense. They were totally disregarding valid visual and evidence buttressed by good short-term memory. And I basically said, the guys who are doing the debunking are crazy. They're nuts. They're taking a different tack. They're off the, uh, they're off the track on this. And I can understand why, because there's another side of psychology that explains why people distance themselves from uncomfortable things and uh, that we can go into later if you like but it's a long story but a well-known one in psychology so basically what i'm saying well, what's interesting what's interesting is my phd dissertation was on the influence of belief structure on the identification of ambiguous stimuli there you go which, <laughs> which was a suggestion that if you saw something in the sky you didn't understand and you believed in alien visitation then you identified it as a ufo or if you believe you had a religious background you might uh, identified as angels or something like that. So I think it's kind of an interesting confluence here of, of uh, your uh, background and, and some of my education as well. I agree. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, 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 I keep that hidden. Okay. Well, <laughs> I've never kept it hidden. I made my <laughs> living doing it. So I was no, no reason to. Anyway, thank you for inviting me. I very much appreciate the invitation. Well, what inspired this is I think you published, just published a book about, uh, a brief history of UFOs sighting starting from the beginning and moving through that, uh, your latest book? The latest book is called Truth, Lies, and ETs, How We Stumbled Into the Universe. And the book is not written for specialists like you and me, because I talk to a lot of people who are interested in the current up-to-date details. Was this sighting reliable? Did this person see exactly what he or she said she saw? Are these encounters of uh, kidnappings basically uh, valuable? What I do instead is I do all of this for the lay reader, the person who's just getting interested, who's not read much and what he has or she has is basically in the public media. I want to give the whole picture and up to date and I want to make it not terrifying, but concerning to people because we are being surveilled, we're being kidnapped and we're being dealt with in ways that we cannot control. And I think our civilization, our human species got to know that. That's what the book is about. Uh, what sighting do you begin with? What, where, where's the beginning for, for you of the modern era? Well, the modern era starts with you guys. It starts with, well, the stuff you guys were interested in. It starts with Roswell. It goes back before that because we all know that pre-Roswell, which was 1947, there were sightings towards the end of the Second World War a lot of them fairly well recorded, and I cover that in the book. Then there were 
even before that in the 19th century, suggestive sightings across the US of things called airships. The data weren't clear. The newspapers in those days as they are today were as interested in sensationalism then as they are now. So none of that could be verified by the standards we're used to. But starting in the late 40s at the end of the Second War and right up to the present, the verified eyewitness instrumental sightings have continued and they demonstrate the presence of superior technologically ETs messing with our life space here on Earth. That's the story I'm telling. Not new to us, sorry. One of the things that has bothered me about the great airship sightings of 1897 is they're sort of predictive of the modern era. We have the, the cattle mutilations, we have some abductions, we have the crashes, we have just the sightings in the sky. But when we look at those sightings, the vast majority of misidentifications are outright hoaxes. And a number of the newspaper articles that I've looked at, and I might say numbers, but literally dozens of articles about the great airship, uh, they talk to the crew. And the, crew, the crew is talking about uh, they're going to they're going to uh, Cuba to bomb the Spanish, or um, they're testing their their secret uh, flying machine and, and like that, and it and it strikes me that if we can eliminate or if we eliminate those sightings, um, doesn't that sort of impact the importance of the sightings today by suggesting a, a terrestrial explanation as opposed to an alien explanation? No. Simply, I, I said when we started this conversation that those sightings were dubious, and I agree, but they don't. I mentioned them just in passing because they're part of the history, but not the reliable part of the history. The reliable part of the history starts uh, roughly in 1947, when modern sensors, including cameras, radars, uh, infrared, other things, supplemented and complemented human observations made by people who were uh, experienced observers and had no reason to lie and in fact would get into trouble and often did by reporting things that other people didn't want to hear. I think we're on the same page here. The UFO evidence that makes a difference begins with the reporting that was done about sightings that took place, say, post-1947. Let's start at a good place where you and uh, Schmidt started, the Roswell sightings. That was a very good place to begin because they were, first of all, they were debunked immediately. The evidence has accumulated over the years. It's consistent, it's reliable, it's not perfect. No evidence after the fact is perfect. But the book that you so kindly autographed for me uh, reports the beginning in a very thorough way of the evidence that's been accumulated ever since by people interested in the subject. I don't know what to call them, ufologists, I guess. That's what we all are, one way or another. And most of us have been able to do that by being very careful about who was employing us and what they knew. It was rare, and in my case, because I had tenure, quite possible for me to say what I wanted to say without getting the boot or losing income. And that is the thing I appreciate. Well, let me let me take a break here because we're running up against the, the clock as usual. Uh, the website, I believe, is ufosets.com slash the author. Um, no, ufoets.com. Okay, okay. Ufoets.com. And the, the book is Truth, Lies, and ETs. My blog, of course, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around.
And we are back. I'm here with Don, Don Derry. We're talking about UFOs and his new book, which is Truth, Lies, and ETs. And he, I guess we've kind of got hung up on the Roswell case. And I think <laughs> I've explored that on this program probably <laughs> way too much. They spent way too much time exploring that that case. Uh, in the book, what uh, cases did you find particularly fascinating? What what do you describe there? Well, what I start what I start with in the book, Kevin, is what happened from 2017 on. Remember, just before COVID and just before the Ukraine war, there was a big burst of very mainstream publicity about the U.S. Navy sightings that were released surreptitiously and uh, basically verified or authenticated by the US Navy and by the pilots who spoke out publicly about them. That changed the world from my point of view about the way the public was going to look at the evidence for real extraterrestrial presence in our environment. Of course, things got in the way. COVID got in the way. Um, then later on, <laughs> starting a couple of months ago, the Ukraine war got in the way. We've got all sorts of problems to deal with that involve humans behaving badly to humans. And we haven't really taken up on ETs behaving badly to humans, which they've been doing for quite a long time. But I start by reviewing the recent history, the uh, encounters, encounters by David Fravor and Alex Dietrich, the two uh, Navy pilots and the other two Navy pilots who re reported them. Then I segue right into UFO's history, which goes back and begins basically with Kenneth Arnold and Roswell, which took place within the same two weeks in 1947. And I carry that history forward, not getting into the tiny little details, but covering the main points so that an average interested reader who has not been following this field will get a sense of the depth of the data and how long it's been taken on. Then the other part is lies. I go in immediately to what people started to do with the Roswell data, which was debunk it. There were professional debunkers involved, people who with university positions were basically coerced or persuaded to make sure that nobody took this seriously, people like Donald Menzel, and then the um, Philip Class, who uh, edited Aviation Week and Space Technology, began almost immediately to make fun and ridicule the people who took this seriously for reasons uh, best known to the US government and with the government's consent and support. Then I go on to the ETs, who they are, what they look like, and why they're here. I would I would argue the point on Philip Class. I don't think he really had any government uh, influence on that. I think it all developed with his arguments with James McDonald, Dr. McDonald being an atmospheric physicist yeah. at the what, uh, University of Arizona, Arizona State University. Correct. Class came out with a theory in the mid-1960s that UFO sightings could be explained by ionic discharges in the atmosphere. And I think that McDonald, among other scientists, kind of debunked that theory immediately, making class look a little bit foolish. And I think it was his motivation at that time to get even with him. So I think he came to the UFO table with a chip on his shoulder and he was just going to debunk everything. I don't think there was any government influence there. I think it was just his anger at the scientific community for their response to his theory. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we can point to um, any number of governmental agencies attempting to debunk UFOs. Uh, the Robertson panel. Do you talk about the Robertson panel at all in the book? I do. I cover that in the in the section called lies. I <laughs> I, 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 I 
I apologize to the late Philip Class, and I actually got that wrong. But I certainly was an active debunker for whatever reason. And oh he, yes, and he, he got right onto McDonald and was one of the leading harassers of McDonald as well. I know that, and that led him to uh, an unfortunate end, as we all know. But uh, anyway, well, let, let me interrupt here for sure. just a moment because I did a I did an article on my blog about that. I was challenged. I said that, that Philip Class attacked people personally and caused trouble, and somebody challenged me on that point. And I put up five different things that Class had done. People P, Class had attacked. Um, in his debunking activities where it turned out not to be completely and totally true. But I think it was all motivated by his annoyance at uh, the UFO field. But I would also say the class was, was a very charming man when you met him in a, an arena that had nothing to do with UFOs. I never did. Away from UFOs and he was okay. Um, but the Robertson panel, I, I, that was CIA sponsored. Uh, yeah. I cover that in the book and I cite a lot of what they wrote too. Uh, just to, to, so the audience knows exactly what the Robertson panel did. Oh, they were convened to review the UFO evidence at the time, roughly, of the Washington flap, which took place in around uh, 1952. There were a lot of sightings over Washington. Uh, fighters went up to chase them, found nothing. Airline pilots saw them. They disappeared from radar. Uh, the government was asked to uh, investigate. But a CIA committee had already made their mind up and also reported, and I cite this, that it was a bad thing for national defense that people took UFO sightings seriously because it might interfere with the activities of the ground-based, human-based uh, air defense system we had at the time, which involved people standing on platforms with binoculars looking for Russian bombers. And uh, that was part of the, if not the whole motivation for trying to keep people away from reporting UFOs because they might overwhelm the uh, the early warning system of the U.S. And so there was at least a plausible military excuse for debunking the UFOs, but the debunking kept on for sure. Well, wasn't uh, the Washington National sightings, as they were known, uh, weren't they? And it was is that a legitimate excuse? I'm sorry, weren't they? What I missed that. Uh, they were debunked as temperature inversions. Yeah, that's what they were called. Yeah. Not Is that a legitimate excuse? No. No. Because? Because people saw things and they reported them on radar and pilots were, were flying alongside things that they saw. These are not temperature inversions. They're not, uh, they're not uh, something that the atmosphere could produce without there being a stimulus in the atmosphere to make those visual things happen. And those atmospheric stimuli were objects, unidentified flying objects. Uh, so we have the Robertson panel. What about the Condon Committee, the oh, University what? of Colorado study? Uh, As think, part of the lies, yeah. Part, pardon me? As part of the lies. The Condon Committee was founded, as you know, by government Investigation in the later 60s, when all of this uh, past 1965, when this began to attract again widespread attention. And Condon hired some people who were honest and some people who weren't, and produced a report that debunked the whole thing, independently of the evidence the commission reported. And that's the interesting point. The, the commission report is full of data 
and the commission conclusion bears no relation to the data whatsoever. And that's one of the interesting aspects of it. The one bright side of that is that they did report on one case, the famous McMinnville, Oregon uh, photographs, which they actually cleared as being a very good case, but that was ignored during the, uh, during the conclusion. So it was another debunking and cover-up effort. Wasn't the, um, the scientist who did the uh, investigation of McMinnville, I don't know why I stumbled on the word investigation for crying out loud, the, the McMinnville investigation, uh, William Hartman, didn't he, yes. didn't he later uh, kind of retract his enthusiasm for the photograph, suggesting that uh, some of the explanations for how it was maybe faked uh, was legitimate? I don't know. I missed that in my review of the literature, and so perhaps I should be corrected on that. But his original statement in the Condon Commission was unequivocal. He didn't say they were real. He said, we have no evidence. I can't recall the exact wording. This is the best photographic case we have on a record or some such thing, even though it's not perfect. So at that point, he gave credence to it. Well, there's any number of UFO photographic cases in which the... Uh... Matter. Since that time, there have been scores and scores and scores of photographic, instrumental, and other types of reports to buttress the evidence for the presence of vehicles in our atmosphere that humans don't know how to make. And most, most recently, from 2017 on, 2004 on, basically. What are some of the other photographic cases that you found impressive? Not just McMinnville, but are there some others? Well, uh, McMinnville, not really, because you have to go until more recently. Well, I was thinking specifically the Lubbock Lights. And, I am. and there are books behind my, look right behind, you can see here, your, your viewers can see behind me, on the shelf behind me, hundreds and hundreds of pages of documented UFO observations, both personal and photographic which have basically passed the test of the people like us who take a serious interest in the field and have some academic qualifications to back that up. And there are lots of them. Uh, there are, there's a, a guy named Belester Olmos who has a thing called PhotoCat in which he collects many photographic observations of uh, people reporting UFOs. I think the photo photographic evidence combined with eyewitness testimony, combined with instrumental evidence, is overwhelming that we're looking at and experiencing unidentified flying objects in Earth's atmosphere that humans do not know how to make. That's where well, I, I was thinking. I was wondering about uh, your, did you do any research into the Lubbock Lights? Oh goodness, uh, the Lubbock Lights I know about. I didn't. I, I didn't treat them heavily in the book because uh, it's just too much to cover. I wanted to write a relatively short. over uh, Lubbock, Texas, which went on for days and was widely seen as an excellent case. I just didn't get around to it. That's all. There was so much else. Well, I understand having to limit the uh, yeah. scope of a book because you only have a limited number of pages you can use. Well, look behind uh, me. We, there are lots of people who've written lots more. <laughs> when, when we come back, um, let's talk a little bit about physical evidence cases. I'm sure you've covered some of the more famous physical evidence cases. We can take a look at those as well. Sure. Yeah. 
And as I say, you, know, uh, you get a chance to take a look at the, uh, my book on Level Land, which is the UFOs interacting with the environment, for example, and the latest book, uh, Understanding Roswell, comes at it from basically a different perspective, I suppose. I will be back with Don, Don Derry. I don't know why I stumble on that every time. We will be back with him right up. And we are back. I'm here with Don, Don Derry. We're talking about UFOs. And when we get went away, I promised we would talk about physical evidence cases. And I don't know how many he looked at or what specific ones he did examine, but we'll find out right now. Physical evidence cases. What do you think? I've, I've ex examined very few, quite honestly. That's one area where I have, uh, you might say, not taken my shovel and uh, and trowel out into the woods and dug up burn sites and stuff like that. We know, you and I, from reading that there's lots of evidence that what people see nearby leaves traces. Uh, one or two cases I can think of basically come from Bud Hopkins' works, the uh, abduction researcher, where some of his abductees reported and people found shortly afterwards uh, burn marks on the ground where the alleged UFO abduction took place. And there's a famous physical case with a guy named Stephen Michalek, who had been up in the mountains in Canada, came across a landed UFO, touched it, got burns, which were reported and recorded later after the UFO took off. So there is physical evidence. I consider, by the way, physical evidence, not just to be things left behind, but also observations made by our tools. And our tools include photographs, they include radar, they include infrareds, uh, and this stuff has accumulated uh, exponentially during the last five or 10 years, especially since 2017. Everyone here probably knows this, although things happening in 2017 uh, in the main media, New York Times, Washington Post, on TV, began to get overwhelmed almost immediately when COVID hit in. And the fact that U.S. Navy jet pilots recorded on their own uh, flying instrumentation, their carriers recorded on their radar instrumentation, evidence that these machines that we cannot make because they fly too fast, they accelerate so fast that if we were in them, and not protected by means we don't understand, we would all be crushed like uh, scrambled eggs on the wall of these things. This evidence is now overwhelming. It's been reported everywhere. And it's evidence based on reliable people and reliable instruments. That's good enough. In addition to the ground traces, the, uh, the uh, radioactivity that's left on certain sites when UFOs take off and people get there shortly afterwards, and so forth and so on. I can't qualify myself as an expert on this, and I don't cover much of it in the book. In fact, I just flipped through it to check while we were on a bit break. There's not much I can report here that you probably haven't already reported and other people haven't. Roswell is full of physical evidence, as we know, and you reported on that quite a while ago. And of course, all of that's it's controversial when it's been covered up, but a lot of it these days isn't covered up. Well, I was wondering, did you you didn't take a look at Socorro, New Mexico, Lonnie Zamora? Oh, yeah, I did look at that. That was one of the cases that I did mention, and it's got physical evidence in it. I'm sorry, I thought about that as an occupant case. But of course, these two ETs standing alongside their landed UFO and got back into it and ran away when Lonnie showed up, and the thing emitted flames, left scorched earth and plants. Yeah. 
Thanks for reminding me. It's in the book. <laughs> There's a lot in the book. I thought of that one more or less as an quote occupant case, but it had physical evidence as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, I really never think of it as an occupant case. I think of it as a police officer observation. And yeah, well, that's true too. What we're, what we're agreeing on here is that there's a tremendous amount of very hard evidence, the kind that would, as you pointed out, stand up in court with a law officer uh, as a witness and so forth and so on. It goes on and on. Well, I think that the, some of the skeptics look at all this material and they say, well, I want to see a piece of the, the UFO. I want to see the bodies. I want to see the craft itself. We don't have any of that. Is the evidence that we have really sufficient or do we need to take one more step? Do we need one more thing before we get the absolute proof? So what do you want the government to do? Shoot one down? Seriously. These well, are I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying that. I know you're not. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just wondering that, that we all have different standards for what we accept as the, uh, I guess, the ultimate evidence of UFO visitation or alien visitation. And I, I was talked to any number of skeptics, and some of them seem quite reasonable, and some of them want the craft. They want to see the bodies that were recovered at Roswell, that sort of thing. And I just wondered where you, I guess, fit into that continuum of um, evidence, acceptance of the evidence. What, what, where do you? I have, okay, let's, I have made my living studying human visual perception and memory. It is possible to fool some of the people some of the time, but it's not possible to fool all of the people all of the time. And much of the evidence that's been collected visually and instrumentally is so consistent and so reliable that I have no hesitation, I would have no hesitation if ever asked to stand up in court put my hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and state that extraterrestrial vehicles, uh, including extraterrestrial crew, have been here, have visited and have interacted with people. And the evidence that we collectively have accumulated, the UFO community, and that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, is more than adequate to support that conclusion. If if you or some other person thinks the only way to collect the evidence is to find an actual crashed uh, UFO, then go back to Roswell, which you wrote about, or look for whatever else the government's been doing in the meantime, and I haven't a clue. But what's available in public is good enough for me. One of the things that bothers me about this, um, and, and you mentioned Roswell frequently, is a number of the witnesses that we interviewed that we thought were credible, we thought were reliable, turned out not to be as credible or reliable as, as we had expected. That harms the case in some, some respects, I think. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Frank Kaufman and Glenn Dennis, for example. Um, changing their stories or, I guess, inventing their stories. Um, what do you think of people like that or, or that kind of thing as sort of the anti-evidence? Well, you know, Frank Hoffman lied about his involvement. Therefore, this whole Roswell case collapses at that point. Um, I mean, I don't think that's a legitimate conclusion to draw, but I wondered what, what you thought about that. Well, first of all, we're not in my trade, in my, my academic business that I practiced for 47 years. If I'd done that and it was caught out, I'd be fired. I'd be out of the trade and I'd be in disgrace. There is no such trade dealing with UFO evidence. 
you have to and so there's no there's no ufo university that decides for humanity as a whole whose evidence is reliable and whose is not we are a large and diverse community but we don't operate by the same standards and not everybody in it is as honest as everybody else there are always going to be crooks in human life period and there are always going to be liars and uh, dissimul dissimulators in human life. We hope we have as few of them as any trade does, but there always will be a few. What can I say? It's human nature. So I, I think you kind of missed my point, but um, which was, uh, well, let, let's, let's take it to, to 1995 and the Air Force investigation of the Roswell case coming out that it was a Project Mogul balloon. And I hesitate to go there because I'm sure the audience has heard enough about mogul from me over the years. But um, I look at that information and the one thing that I, I stumble over is the skeptical embrace uh, Project Mogul as the ultimate explanation for Roswell. And yet we have the documentation, not just the testimony, the documentation from the people who were there in 1947 launching the balloons the flight they pinned it on, flight number four, never flew. Um, and yet I see recently a number of different websites or different articles talking about uh, UFO cases. And they mentioned Roswell. I said, well, it was proven to be a top secret government balloon uh, project. Kevin, here's the problem. Here's the problem with the entire field. <laughs> first of all, I, I explained this in my first book, which was called UFO. Um, um, UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions, a scientist looks at the evidence. In psychology, we know about something called cognitive dissonance. It's not a new idea. The theory was first proposed in 1975, and it boils down in plain language to this. If there's some piece of information that makes you uncomfortable, and you want to find a way to avoid being made uncomfortable by it, look for a way to dismiss it. Explain the information as coming from an unreliable source. Explain the information as being something that uh, the Russians are trying to persuade us is true. Use any psychological tool you have to dismiss it and to put it out of mind, which people do routinely. And so if you find one weak link in a chain of argument, you will say that invalidates the entire chain, which it does not. The rest of the argument stays firm, but everybody will look for an excuse to stop paying attention to something that makes them feel uncomfortable. That's been documented by philosophers of science and by psychologists for hundreds of, literally hundreds of years. It goes back to William James in the 19th century. Nothing new about that. People look for excuses not to pay attention to what they don't want to pay attention to, and they'll find them. And the, the so-called skeptics have made a living or made a life, if not a living, out of being skeptics. And that's their trade. They, that's how they want to keep things going. And uh, more power to them, but they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. So the fact that we have this one little glitch, Project Mogul, and we can see that it doesn't really fit the evidence, and we, we see the timing is wrong, and we know that it never flew, that they seize upon that because it gives them an excuse not to accept the idea that we might be visited by alien creatures. Correct. Absolutely. One they in the mindset of a person who's a skeptic, one rotten apple spoils the entire barrel. That's not true. 
And in fact, that one rotten apple wasn't a rotten apple. It was just an excuse. But they'll, okay. they'll expand the excuse. Let's do this. We're going to have to take another break here. And let's do this. When we come back, I wanted to get your take on abduction since you had mentioned it a couple of times. And we're, oh, yeah. we're running into the last segment here. So we'll talk a little bit about abductions when we come back. The book, again, is True Lies and ETs. Uh, my blog is www.kevinmandel.blogspot.com. The latest book is Understanding Roswell. And the one pri prior to that was Level Land. And the one prior to that was UFOs in the Deep State. Take a look at all of that stuff. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. And we are back. I am here with Don Donderry. We've been talking about UFOs and his book, uh, Truth, Lies, and ETs. And when we went away, I promised uh, we would talk a little bit about abductions. Uh, since I guess that is one of your uh, fields of interest as well. Yeah, that's right. I take them seriously. It is not just UFOs, quote unquote, that people are dealing with on this planet. It is interference by ETs with human life. And that interference is direct. And it is done by UFOs using a tool that most people don't really appreciate exists. That is telepathy. To approach and control human beings and basically use other physical techniques that the ETs have that we don't have, which is to lift them into UFOs, often literally by using some anti-gravity device, then interfering with them, often with their reproductive systems, to produce a hybrid UFO, uh, ET human uh, critters who look just like us and come back to Earth. Now, that is a radical mouthful. Desire not to believe will, will basically uh, come in, and they'll want to do anything but take that information seriously or that proposition seriously. I support it. I support the idea, first, that ETs can communicate telepathically with people, that is, without verbal communication and with force of command. Second, that they do abduct, that is they kidnap, I use a better word, it's kidnap, people into their UFOs, or I call them extraterrestrial vehicles, that they interfere with them, mostly reproductively, by producing ET human hybrids, who are then put back on earth to integrate with human society with one difference. They have the telepathic ability to control or modify human behavior. Now, all of that is a tremendous mouthful to absorb in uh, a couple of sentences to absorb at the end of a very entertaining and interesting uh, discussion we've had. But I think it's all true. And I'm willing to stake my book and my reputation on the journal. Still a highly controversial subject in psychology, but it's in, the interest goes back, again, hundreds of years, and I'm a credible contributor to that evidence. Secondly, the abduction evidence itself is strong. It's been investigated by many people, not as many as it's done. On the side of taking most of that evidence seriously. But isn't there a, I mean, isn't there way too many abductions being taken place if you think about the logistics of it? Uh, I, I think that, I, was say, I think that 
their discussion of maybe 3 million Americans have been abducted. And of course, the ETs wouldn't be interested just in Americans. They, they might be interested in some Canadians. Well, two or three Canadians. <laughs> but America, Europe and, and Africa, uh, Australia, it, it just seems that the logistics would overwhelm any system to uh, uh, abduct people that, that frequently and that many well, first of all, I don't know how many people are abducted. I've never, I don't know where you came up with a 3 million number. I, I have a clue. And I've never tried in any scholarly sense to make a study of the evidence that would give me an appropriate number. Second thing is, I want to point out, and I do in the book, that we treat inferior species on this planet in exactly the same way that I claim and others claim ETs are treating us. We do it all the time. We interbreed them, we make them, we treat them as pets, we put them in zoos, we use them for research experiments. In other words, we are not particularly nice to the other critters, two-legged or four-legged on this planet, that we cohabit with. But the difference there is they're dealing with a sentient race. We're dealing with creatures that aren't sentient in the same way we are. But uh, to, to get back to your idea of where I got the 3 million figure, there was a Roper poll done in 1997, at, I think funded by oh, QFOS, yeah. the Fund for UFO Research and uh, MUFON, at, uh, where they did a scientific survey of um, people and they determined based on their survey that at least 3 million, three to 6 million, I think it was, people in the United States have probably been abducted. Uh, the second part of that question is, doesn't sleep paralysis come into that uh, play a little bit? The uh, people who think they've been abducted actually suffered from uh, periods of sleep paralysis, and that would be somewhat of a terrestrial explanation for the phenomenon. Sure. I never, I know the quote, I now know the Roper poll you're talking about, and that's an interesting but not decisive number. One poll across the population, done as it was, and I understand how it was done and by whom, uh, is suggestive but not definitive for sure. So I have no idea how many people have been abducted. And sleep paralysis is a possible explanation for something that happens uh, at night, which may confuse you about what's been going on at the time you were unable to move. But I think that the evidence that some people who have reported what's called missing time and who have been reporting it for many, many years is worthwhile taking seriously. And much of that evidence is the result of people who have gone through the missing time experience, being then subject to something that's used in ordinary psychotherapy as a tool for uncovering trauma. And that is hypnosis. Now hypnosis sounds to everyone, almost everyone, like something that goes on on stage to impress and entertain people, but has no serious place in reality. That is not correct. Hypnosis is a tool for modifying consciousness to the point where certain allowing other usually traumatic thoughts to be to come to the surface, to be, be to arrive in consciousness, not inaccurate thoughts, not false thoughts, but hidden thoughts about earlier trauma, rape, uh, misbehavior of one kind or another, either by oneself or by other people towards oneself. This is a psychotherapeutic tool. can be abused like any tool can, like medicine can be abused, but when it's properly used and properly controlled, 
it has produced evidence that some people who had close encounters with extraterrestrial vehicles have also been uh, brought on board those vehicles and studied at the very least and returned. So ET abductions, I believe, are real, some of them anyway. They have consequences, and those consequences include uh, interfering with the reproductive processes of human beings, sometimes in the, with the goal of producing an alien species that represents a cross between ETs and humans that look largely human. That's a very radical position. I hold it. How frequent it happens, I don't know, but I stand by it. What are some of the abduction cases you find particularly persuasive? Well, how about the original one, the Barney and Betty Hill case? Now, most people probably have heard of Barney and Betty Hill, if nothing else, because it was one of the first to be widely publicized in the 60s. Again, an event that took place, if I recall rightly, in 65. And it involved a interracial couple, unusual at the time, who were driving back from Montreal, of all places where I happen to be sitting right now, uh, back to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, were abducted on Route 3, US Route 3, before the interstates were completed, and brought aboard the ET, subjected to various kinds of tests, and then returned to Earth. All of this brought out under the same tool that I was describing, which is uh, hypnotherapy by a qualified psychiatrist who never accepted the validity of what they reported under hypnosis. He accepted they were being honest and that they, they weren't trying to fool him, but he found the evidence so disturbing or unbelievable that he couldn't accept it. But he was open about saying that he, they did, they gave evidence under hypnosis. I did the hypnosis. This is what they reported and you make the most of it, but I'll, I'll keep my hands off it, put it that way. So the Barney and Betty Hill case is the first. There have been many similar cases since. I don't go through too many of them, but a couple of them I do go through in the book and report on them as reliable. Again, because often there's multiple witnesses to the abduction. There's multiple uh, regressive hypnosis of the victim and the reports are consistent. And uh, do I know, a yeah, I know at least one up, up here in Montreal as well, where I've met the abductee and have credible and competent, a knowledge of the competent and credible investigators, local people both. Well, I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave it. <laughs> we're, we're just flat running out of time here. <laughs> it's a great subject. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. No, not a problem at all. I apologize for not being able to say Don Derry with any kind of <laughs> emphasis here for stumbling over that. Uh, the books, again, are Truth, Lies, and ETs. Your, what's your website again? UFOETS.com. And they can learn about uh, that, uh, about your books and your uh, uh, theories at, at that point, I guess. They can, and they can get the book on Amazon, of course. Well, yes, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. I appreciate you being here. And uh, that kind of wraps it up here. Next week, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to... Um, be flying solo once again, but I'm going to be looking at a number of cases uh, with some uh, photographic evidence, <laughs> some slides, some additional information, giving an idea of where my thinking is on the UFO phenomenon and see how well that works. Um, and if it works well, then I've got a number of ideas for doing a uh, follow-up show. Anyhow, this will kind of be a top 10 listing of UFO sightings, which is not 
definitive, meaning simply that I could switch things out and come up with other cases and probably do a top 25 or top top 50 uh, UFO cases. The blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I'll have um, a link to uh, Dr. Dondary's uh, website up there as well, and a little bit of a synopsis of today's show. And uh, the other thing is we have just been looking at some um, interesting uh, cases. There's a Chasing Footnotes segment that deals with the Randall edition because of something that uh, I have gone through in the last couple of weeks that leads us to a interesting case, I suppose. Anyway, we'll be back in about 167 hours to talk about UFOs and the top 10 cases. So please uh, look for us then. Thank you. <laughs>